It is Palm Sunday, in case you didn't know it. The most interesting thing is pre-service when I was talking to Jen, and she said, oh, I didn't know we were going to do that. And I was like, well, it is Palm Sunday. And then I was talking to the kids' teachers, and they were like, oh, we didn't know we were going to do that. And all I could think was, well, the disciples didn't either, and look how it turned out for them. <laughs> My wife said, that's on you to not communicate. And I said, no, that's on Jesus to start the tradition. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn to the book of Mark. I'm going to give you a bunch of scriptures today. So you're going to want to jot them down. I don't think you'll be able to look at each one as I say them. Um, but first, before I do that, as per my wife's reminding me, she said, Jeff, people spent hours working on the ground yesterday. Don't forget to thank them. And you think, really? You have to be reminded of that? Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do have to be reminded. But it's not that I'm not thankful, because I'm extremely thankful. If, if you came out and worked yesterday, would you stand up just so I can show our congregation how many people there were? Please don't be shy. Now... You may not think this is many. This is only about half of what we had. The other half are too sore to be here. You guys can sit. We're the ones who apparently didn't work hard enough. We had about 30, between the two campuses, we had actually almost 40 people, just shy of 40 as I was making a list, that came out. And if you're wondering, that's a quarter of our weekly average in our congregation. So thank you guys for coming out. We... Here we managed to get all the toys in the nursery and the preschool. Every toy got wiped down, every toy surface, every table surface. We got vacuumed. The, uh, we had some coffee stains on the carpet. We had coffee stains on the wall. I don't know what you people do with coffee. I'm not a coffee drinker, but apparently you're toasting a lot without a lid. But we got those wiped down. We've got, in case you didn't notice, we had some bark added. We're still not done with that area. We're going to add a few other things in there to just to spruce up our grounds, but the crows, in case you didn't know, we got an infestation of grub worms, and the crows won. I finally gave up. Um, at the other grounds, we trimmed around the water retaining pond. We got the lawn mowed. All the hedges were trimmed. We just had trash. People like to just drop stuff off there for us. Thank you. Um, and we, we were able to take a full load to the dump. Um, so we had a lot of different projects that happened there. I'm not naming everything that happened, but I will tell you this. We're now in compliance with the fire marshal with our new exit, lighted exit signs there, so he should be happy. But for all of you who came out yesterday, seriously, from, the, from weeding to scrubbing to cleaning out the Java dock to whatever it was we did, thank you for your time and your effort and your energy. We make our place more attractional when we bring people, which goes right into my other thing. I always say you can't force someone to come with you. Please don't. But you know what you can do? You can invite. We made these cards specifically for Easter. They even say on them, Easter. Now, it does say Sunday's at 10, because if they can't make it on Easter, they already have plans. We'd love to have them. But as James often says, they expire next Sunday, because it says Easter. These will be at the Easter egg hunt over that we do at the other campus. And um, I would encourage you, invite someone. If they have kids, take one that says egg hunt, bounce house. If they don't, just take one that says Easter. Um, it's not, I always say it's not about growing the biggest church, but it is about making an impact in our community. I value the people in our community. I value the people that live around here and that are part of our neighborhoods. And I want them to know that there's a church that wants to love them, that will help them find purpose and belonging. So now that you've had time to turn to Mark chapter 11, let's read some scripture and talk about the final week that Jesus was here on earth. 
before his resurrection. It says, Then they brought the colt to Jesus, this is his disciples, and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down the leafy branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. That's where the palm leaves come in, people, for those of you not putting it together. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now right there, that alone can be a serious sermon. When you read through what they're yelling out to him, those are prophetic words being fulfilled. The last three weeks I talked about the prophecies of the Old Testament being fulfilled in the coming of Jesus and in his death and in his resurrection. And the reason that's significant is you got to realize this was written thousands of years before. This wasn't, they sat down, they wrote a book from beginning to end, and here it is. This is a compilation of different authors coming together with the inspiration of God, giving us a story, an arc that goes from, here's the beginning of humanity, here's why we're, we're evil and sin, and here's our story and our hope for redemption. And then it goes on to say, and Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple, So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So what we have here from chapter 11 through chapter 15, I don't have time to read it all, but I'm going to give you some highlights. We have a week of stories. A lot of those stories you know as parables. A lot of the parables you may have learned if you grew up in Sunday school and you learned these Bible lessons and you're wondering where they were from. This is where they're from. It's a week of stories. Uh, chapter 12, 1 through 12, talks about a wicked vine dresser. 13, 28 through 31, talks about a fig tree. I could keep going, but I just want you to have an understanding. There were these stories that he tells, and he sits down, and he uses this as a teaching opportunity. Another thing we see during this week is a week of lessons. Again, a fig tree. He liked to talk about figs. I have a feeling he enjoyed them. He talks about the greatest commandment. He talks about and tells people, no one knows the time. I hit on that a lot because I hear over and over and over, somebody's figured out when Jesus is coming back and now's the time and we need to put up billboards all across America and we need to sell everything we own and we need to do these things. And I keep going, no one knows the time. Stop trying to use math, your special formula, the enlightenment, whatever they want to call it, says no one knows the time. And this is even Jesus saying, no one knows you guys. No one knows other than the Father. It's a week of questions. They ask about taxes, a question many of us probably have on our mind this week, especially if you haven't done yours yet. If you haven't done it by tomorrow, you might be getting a call. (laughs) Questions about the resurrection in chapter 12. Questions about how David can call his heirs Lord. How can he call the one who comes after him Lord? How can David do that? It's a week of prophecies, prophesying the destruction of the temple in chapter 13, followed by the coming of the Son of Man in 13, 24 through 27. It's a week of celebration. We have both the Passover and the Lord's Supper, the very first communion, 14, 22, or 14 12 through 26. I'm going to talk about that more on Friday night. If you've ever wondered... Why do we do communion? I don't even understand that. Or what is that all about? That's all about the very last night of his life where he talks about and says, here's what we do. 
And here's what we do. It says, as often as we do it, we do it in remembrance of me. And then there's a week of betrayal. We have a plot, and this is chapter 14. We have Peter's prediction, or the prediction of Peter betraying Jesus. We have his arrest. We get into chapter 15 with a trial, which is really just a mockery. And then we have that final sense of betrayal where they choose Barabbas, a rapist and murderer, over Jesus when they have a choice of who they're going to free. It's quite a week. On the first day of the week, he comes in and they're yelling Hosanna and they're laying down palm branches and coats and they're saying, he is the king. And by Thursday night, he's celebrating Passover and he leaves to go pray and his disciples keep falling asleep and he's arrested in the garden. And by Friday, his death sentence is already imposed. Sometimes it's just easier to pick out one part of the story, but it's so big, it's so hard to pick one thing. It's hard on, even on the triumphal Sunday, to just talk about Palm Sunday without talking about what's going to happen on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. There's so much to it that we get a fuller picture, a better understanding when we look at it as a whole story. There are four primary points of view when you're telling a story. And if you've ever done a creative writing class, you might have learned about this, or it's, it's a fairly common thing, but you have four points of view. You have the first person point of view. That's when the I person is telling the story. I did this, I saw this, I experienced this. Second person point of view, which is when they say you. When you were young, you did this, or you may have done this. And that's the second person point of view. The third person point of view is what they call the limited point of view. Third person limited is the story is about he or she. And so they talk about how he did this. That's really the point of view that the book of Mark is written about. Then you have the third person point of view, which is omniscient, which outside the story details, only the storyteller knows. But there's four points of view when you're telling a story in when Jesus is going through this, we have a lot of different points of view. We actually have more than four. Because you have the point of view of the disciples and the questions that they have. You have the point of view of the religious leaders who feel like their authority is being threatened. You have the point of view of the Roman government who feels like, is he trying to challenge our overall authority over this region? They're calling him king of the Jews. They're calling him David's heirs. Is he raising up an army to fight against us? You have the, just the simple shopkeepers and people of the day who were in the village who are watching all of this happen and wondering, what is going on? And then get caught up in the mob mentality, the mob mentality that begins to praise him, that begins to cut down branches and lay them down on the ground. And then you have the point of view of Jesus, fully knowing that these people are going to betray him. And yet, we talked about last week, it's not that he wants to die, it's that he's willing to die. He's there in the midst of all this, and he has to be wondering, how do you praise me today knowing what's coming? 
And he probably wonders the same thing about us sometimes. How do you praise me on Sunday when I know what's coming? When I know the thoughts that you have? When I know how angry you are? When I know the sin that's going on in your life? And yet, he invites you into that place of worship. He offers unconditional grace. One of my favorite sayings about grace is, if you think somebody is beyond the grace of God, I don't think you're really talking about grace. Because there's nothing beyond the grace of God. And sometimes we want to pretend that, no, this person is too bad, or this thing is too bad. So you're telling me that God could forgive, and you name the worst thing you can think of. And I'm like, yep. And the problem we have with that is, we want forgiveness for us, but not for the other guy. So one of the things it says is that we're called to take up our cross daily. That's what Jesus tells us. But what does this look like in our lives in modern day America? What does it look like to take up our cross daily? First thing is dying to self. We're called to be a living sacrifice. But here's the problem with a living sacrifice. When it gets on the altar, it can just as easily crawl off. Living sacrifice squirms and moves and doesn't just lay there while you kill it. And so we're called to be a living sacrifice, and yet none of us want to be sacrificed. And none of us want to give up our things. None of us want to give up our rights. We're Americans, we have rights. How many times have we felt like put out because somebody violated our personal space even? We have rights, and they don't, and yet God calls us to be a living sacrifice. Called to take up our cross daily means I have to offer grace and forgiveness to others. But we take grace and we make it cheap. And we don't try to really change anything about our lives. We just say, I'm just not there yet. Or that's okay for other people. But we're not really allowing grace to rule in us and through us. And we forget that that free sacrifice, that free grace, costs somebody their life. Because it's much easier for me to not put it in those terms, because then I feel bad and I feel guilty. And I say all the time, shame and guilt, shame is from the enemy, but conviction is from the Holy Spirit. And some of us don't know the difference and don't know how to sort the two out. So anytime we feel bad, we either ignore it or we quit. We give up because I can never be good enough. And yet God's looking and saying, I need you to take up your cross daily, but not to walk in past shame. I need you to be free from that shame. Because when we're free from that past shame, when we're free from the I messed up, that's why he offers us forgiveness. That's why he gives us that hope, so that we can walk free. And the third thing, when we take up our cross daily, it means we're bringing hope to those who choose. To those who choose to accept it. Hope to the broken. How many times do I have to offer forgiveness? You know. How many times? That's what Peter wants to know. How many times do I have to offer forgiveness? And Jesus said, well, you know, in the Old Testament it says seven times, but I tell you, not seven, but 70 times seven. He's still not wanting you to keep record because he says, keep no record of wrong. So in other words, it's unlimited. It tells us your forgiveness is unlimited. 
Don't keep record of how many times they've broken it and blown it and screwed up. You want to love people? Don't keep track. And it's so hard because I deserve fairness. I deserve justice. I deserve what's right. And yet somebody sins against me and that's not right. But when I sin, I want instant forgiveness. I want them to go, oh, it's okay, Jeff. We know you didn't mean it. When they sin against me, I want them to stew in it a little bit. You got to pay a little bit of a price. You know, I got to get, I may not need my pound of flush, but a few ounces is going to be good. I've got to keep poking and keep pressing because, after all, you did hurt me. And am I willing to forgive the person who wronged me knowing that they haven't even asked forgiveness? But, Jeff, they never came and said they were sorry. They never admitted they were wrong. They never confessed their sin. Nowhere does he say, when they come to you, then you have to only. It says forgive them. And that's really hard because why do I have to forgive them? Do you know what they did? Do you know what they said? Do you know how they acted and how they treated me? And he says, forgive them. Because that's what I would do. This is way more difficult than what it should be. We like the idea that God forgives us but want the other guy to be punished a little bit because he sinned against me and he should have to pay some price. We like the idea that God releases us from our guilt. But you know, if some people felt more guilty, maybe they wouldn't keep doing bad things. We like the idea that God agrees with our politics, but sometimes our politics are so far one direction or another that we then, God would have to be made in our image instead of us in his image. And we make the other guy our enemy, and we talk in terms of us versus them, instead of how do we love all and how do we serve all. We like the idea that God judges the evil and rewards the righteous in this lifetime. There's entire doctrines built on the idea that if you do this and this and this, if you'll just give this much, then you're going to get this blessing from God. If you want to be blessed, then you have to give to me. There's entire doctrines built on that. But that's never what Jesus says. That's never what Jesus says. We love the idea that God offers grace so freely. But can he really forgive them for what they did? And do I really have to? Jeff, you don't know, I, I paid a huge price for what they did. I was right and they were wrong and I still got judged. I still, I remember when I was working, it was my first job ever, and there was an incident at the skating rink I worked at, and my boss pulls me aside, and he's angry at me. And uh, we began to talk through it, and it was in the middle of the shift, and then afterwards he asked me to come into his office, and I thought he was going to fire me, and we're talking. And I said, but they did this and this and this. And he's like, I, I don't care what they do. I can't control what they do. But you can control your response to their actions. And it taught me so much because he didn't fire me, but he actually instead taught and instilled a lesson in my life. 
how to treat customers and how to respond to people that are angry with you and that kind of thing. But also, it doesn't matter how they act towards me. What matters is my response and is it Christ-like. The triumphal entry in life is so hard. We say we love Jesus, and today we say it, and Friday night we'll mourn the death, we'll have communion, it'll be dark in here, we'll have some candles, it'll be mainly music and readings, and we'll have that time to ponder. And then every year after Good Friday service, my family, we go out to eat, because that's what you do after a funeral. And you may not know that, you may not be from the Midwest, but it's true. And um, so we go out for dinner afterwards, and just this morning time, And then Saturday morning, we're back to life as usual, and 7 a.m., I'll be at the other campus ready with my bullhorn to start telling people, set those tables up over there. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's be excited that we have guests coming. And I'll laugh and goof around with a bunch of kids. And then Sunday morning, I'll celebrate the resurrection. And oftentimes, I go through it, and it just becomes a thing. But sometimes during that moment, in life, when we go through those things, we feel them deeply. I've shared this story before, but somebody actually asked me about it like two months ago, and I thought, oh, there might be people who don't know it. And this was the closest I've ever been to that understanding of that. And I was 25 years old, and I was a youth pastor, associate pastor at this church, and the pastor was out of town, and I get a call that this lady in the church who's in her 80s, her husband's dying at the hospital, and we're we're just a few blocks from the hospital. So I I walked over to the hospital, because it wasn't that far, and I used to really enjoy walking. And then I got old, and now I don't do enough. But I walked to the hospital, and I'm, you know, I'm all dressed up, because that's what I did back then. And I go, and I get on the elevator, and I go up, and he's dying, and I've never really been with somebody who was dying at that point. And I'd seen dead people before, but I'd never been there when they were actively dying. And it's messy, and it's painful, and it's uncomfortable for some people. And that was the first time I learned, I'm actually pretty good with this. And it wasn't until years later that I worked at a hospice hospital and discovered, yeah, I'm good at this. But I'm there, and he's dying, and I take a break, and go outside, and then I go back in, and I'm there for about an hour, hour and a half, and it's painful, and I'm praying with the family, and I'm praying with his wife, and he dies, and she's sitting there all alone, waiting on her kids to come who weren't there, and I stay there, and maybe 15 minutes later, her son finally gets there, and it had been a couple hours that I'd been there, and she just looks so frail and weak and broken, in this chair, and I pray with her and her son once again, and I walk out, and I'm like on the verge of tears, and I wasn't a crier then, I am now, boy, now I can't even watch a Hallmark commercial without (laughs) needing Kleenex. I grew up, I guess. And I get in the elevator, and right when I get in the elevator, this guy's getting on, he's like, oh, who called you? I was like, what? (laughs) Who called you? And I said, Betty? He's like, what? How does she know? What are you talking about? He and his wife were having a baby. Come on. She's going to give birth any moment. So we get off. So I'm getting ready to go. And I instead, I turn around. I go to a different floor. And we go down. And she's supposed to give birth any moment. I just went to get 
whatever from the car, and he's like, just wait here. We're so then I wait like 15 minutes, and babies apparently can take a while. They're certainly not on my schedule. I go back down to see Ray's wife, because I figured his other kids would be there 20, 30 minutes later, and I walk in, and I talk with them a few more minutes, and now there's a dead body laying there, and there's three people, four people actually, three kids and his wife, all older than me. I'm like younger probably than his grandkids even. They're all crying. I pray with them again. I leave. I go back to this other thing. Try to put on a happy face now. Any baby yet? No? All right, I'll be back in 15 minutes. I go back down and I do this three or four times. And it's this moment of surreal, like I go from literally the deathbed of someone in our church to the maternity ward of a newest person in our church who on Sunday we would always announce like, oh, we lost Brother Ray this week. And then we'd also go, and we got a new member or whatever and hold up, put up pictures of the baby or whatever. That was the kind of church it was. And I'm caught. And I just remember being in the elevator going, wait, where am I going now? Am I happy or am I crying? Because I didn't know what to do. And in one sense, it was a traumatic experience. But it's the very same thing that Jesus is probably feeling that moment. He's excited. These people love me. Look at everybody. They love me. Little children are walking by, waving branches. Some of them with tears in their eyes, by the way. I don't know if you caught that, but it was great. (laughs) This is the celebratory part. But Jesus is about to get crucified. But then he's going to be resurrected. And his people, his followers, his tribe doesn't even get it. You've walked with him for three years. How do you not get it? Read some, you know, catch some foreshadowing, people. He's prophesied and told you the temple's going to get torn down, and in three days, it's going to raise again. Your body is a temple. Okay, come on, people, put some things together. Three years they walked with him. That's what he's going through. He's stuck in this, not literal elevator, but figurative, of excited, but also knowing what's coming. And that week, he sits, and he debates, and he talks, and he shares, and he says he gets angry. How could he not get angry? I mean, imagine the turmoil he's going through. How does, you know, when people go, I don't really believe Jesus got angry. Then you're not understanding what this was. How would he not get angry? I mean, the fact that he tipped over tables, I'm surprised he didn't, like, smack someone in the head, because I would have wanted to. Don't you people get it? There's times I still want to hit people. (laughs) And I've told my kids for years, no hitting, that's not how we solve things. But man, they don't get it. The triumphal entry is not about just Jesus coming into a city. If that's all it was, if it was that one event, he comes in and then we don't have any of the following things. We wouldn't have the depth. But it's this microcosm of the life we live. Every week we walk in, or not every week, some, you know, I guess American average 2.3 times a a month is when people that are involved in a church. So 2.3 times a month we walk in, we worship Jesus, and we walk out and we're unchanged. We walk out and we don't, the next day, I don't love the guy I work with. He's a pain in my butt. I don't even want to be nice to him. Guy cuts me off in traffic. Oh, you better believe I'm going to be the cutter, not the cutty. You don't know my boss. You don't know my spouse. You don't know my neighbors. You don't, you're right, I don't. But you know what? That's the beauty of it. Jesus put you there. You're the one that's got to learn to deal with it. 
Jesus is looking and saying, you can have the life that I've given you, and it can be a life of triumph, but you've got to choose it. What would my life look like if I stopped the continual denying and doubting and grabbed onto the reality of the forgiveness and a life filled with the hope that he's given me. Instead of making grace cheap, making grace something that genuinely causes me to want to change the way I live. An understanding of the sacrifice he made makes me go, I cannot be the same. I will not be the same. I will change. And I'm not talking about feel good, pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm talking about Holy Spirit convict me, Holy Spirit show me, Holy Spirit change me. And that became our mantra and the way we lived our life. You're right, sometimes I drink a little too much, but it's no big deal, Jeff. Sometimes I hit my wife, but come on, she deserves it. Sometimes I, and we could go down every sin we do, everything we know we're supposed to not do, we could go through and never change Or we could go, God, I won't be the same person I am tomorrow. I will change. Because your Holy Spirit is working in me and through me. And that's going to make me more of who you created me to be. What if that was how we approach this? That my triumphal entry starts today and I begin to get rid of that stuff. I make the list that says, here's the sins that continue to trap me. Because I won't be the same person in a year I am right now. And that starts with today, not tomorrow, not six months from now, not 364 days from now. That starts with today. I won't be the same person next year. I won't even be the same person next month because it starts today. And I say, Holy Spirit, enliven quicken, show me. Let me be more drawn to you. Let me be more pressing into you. Let me be more challenged by the conviction that you have put in my spirit and in my soul so that I can be who you have created me to be. Father God, let that rain on us. Let that be poured out on us. God, I pray that this week, this day even, before we leave here, that your Holy Spirit would pour out upon us in such a way that I realize I have to change, that it's not about what gifts I get. It's not about how blessed I am in life, but God, it's about how much I become the person you created me to be, the woman and the man that I was created to be, the spouse that you desire to see in me the employee that you desire for me to be, the employer that you desire for me to be, the neighbor and the friend you want me to be. Make me into that, Father God, not because you force me, but because I choose to submit myself to you. In your name, amen. Again, they expire next, really, probably next Saturday. I don't think you want to go around your neighborhood Sunday morning at six and pass them out. Um, But grab one. And I always say, you can't make someone come, but you can be a catalyst that makes them desire to change. And if they don't come this time, that's okay. There's always next time. There's always next time. Let's be a people who invite and include. And then next week, the thing I am asking, if this is your regular church and you go, yeah, I'm here all the time, please wear a name tag. I know it's a simple thing and you go, everybody knows me or I don't want to be known. I hear both of those things. Please wear a name tag. Because I want somebody that has already talked to you for the last seven months and it's now too long and too embarrassing to ask your name again to be able to call you by your name. And I also want you to be able to see people and people to see you and go, hi, Bob. And one other thing, do me this favor. Because we do have people who aren't here all the time that will be here next 
week that do consider this a part of your church. Never, never, never say these words. Is this your first time here? Because when you find out they've been coming eight years, how does that make them feel? What you can say instead is, I don't believe I've met you. I'm, and then you introduce yourself by your own name and introduce yourself. It's okay. They may say, oh, it's my first time here. Or they go, oh, we must sit in different parts because I've been here since 96. Oh, okay, great. I should be more aware and alert. Please, guys, wear a name tag on Easter. Invite and include. And let's make sure that people know that this is a place where we want them. Thanks. We'll see you next week. You are loved.